You are listening to the Through the Bible Studio Series with Pastor Nate Holdridge. Join us as we continue our study through the Old Testament book of Exodus. Here's Nate. In Exodus chapter 17, God continues his ministry of leading and protecting and providing for the people of Israel. We've already seen them delivered from their slavery in Egypt, set free after the night of the Passover. We've seen the deliverance of God over the Egyptian armies at the Red Sea and the great song of deliverance that the people of God sang in Exodus chapter 15 after that wonderful victory at the Red Sea. In Exodus 15, we saw the people of Israel in great thirst approach the waters of Marah, expecting to find fresh water to drink, but the water was bitter. And God healed that bitter water by having Moses throw in the tree. And the bitter waters were made sweet for the nation. In chapter 16, then, the people of Israel grow hungry, and the Lord gives to them quail, but also gives to them the manna from heaven by which they would be provided for every single day during their time of wandering there in the wilderness. The miraculous provision of the God of Israel. In Exodus chapter 17, this miraculous provision and protection from God only continues. It says in verse 1 that All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord. So the Lord is directing affairs here. He is telling them where to go and when to go. He's leading them and directing them with the pillar of fire and smoke. And so they came and camped, verse 1, at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. A very severe situation here in Exodus 17. I think we could call this an overreaction. First of all, the Lord leads them. And they come to this place. The title is in verse 1. It's called Rephidim. And here they are going to experience water come from the rock and victory over the Amalekites. And the problem, of course, is stated there immediately in verse 1. There was no water for the people to drink. And so now we're going to see the third time that the Lord miraculously provides food or drink for the people of Israel. And it tells us there in verse 2 that the people quarreled with Moses. Now, previously, when they'd complained to Moses about the water situation at Marah or their desire for food in chapter 16. It was merely a complaint and a request. But here we discover in verse 2 that they begin to quarrel with Moses. And that word doesn't really give us 
that great of an idea of how intense their quarreling was. But Moses' prayer to God gives us an idea because in verse 4, he asks the Lord, what shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. So it's very possible that Moses is being slightly dramatic, but it's also very possible that the people of Israel are actually ready to kill Moses as a result of their thirst. The situation has escalated quickly and has escalated greatly. And so they command Moses, they quarrel, they say, give us water to drink. Now, one glaring reality here is that the people went straight to Moses. Notice that they weren't looking for the hand of God. They weren't looking for the provision of God. They weren't crying out to the God of heaven. Instead, they were looking to the hand of Moses. They were looking to this mediator in front of them. And they felt that it was right to go to Moses rather than to cry out to the Lord. Listen, the glory of the new covenant is that we have a high priest in heaven who we can boldly and confidently approach, a high priest who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses and who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Therefore, we are to with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15 and 16. We have this direct and wonderful access to God. The people of Israel at this moment went straight to their man, to Moses, cried out to him and said, you need to provide water for us. Now, I love Moses' response. Oh, leader, hear me. Oh, father, hear me. Oh, husband, hear me. Oh, teacher, hear me. Oh, pastor. Oh, church planter. Oh, you know, whatever position of leadership the Lord may give to you in your life. Listen to this. The complaint comes to Moses and Moses runs straight to the Lord. Moses cried to the Lord. An exceedingly wise move. And the Lord said to Moses in verse 5, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, verse 6, I will stand before you there on the rock at Oreb, and there you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel, and he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? And so the Lord gives Moses some very simple directions. How wonderful, how gracious of God to direct his man he tells him, first of all, he says, I want you to take the staff that's in your hand. It's the staff, by the way, that you struck the Nile with. That's what he said. Take the staff that you struck the Nile with, and this time, go to the rock at Oreb and strike the rock. And God's promise was, water shall come out of it. Now, this is interesting because obviously Moses had taken this staff previously and 
as God had alluded, had struck the Nile with it. And we all know the result of that action. Blood came out of the Nile River. In fact, the Nile River itself was turned to blood. The fresh water supply was turned to blood as a result of Moses striking the Nile with this staff. But here, he would strike the rock and God promised. He said, listen, it's not going to be blood that flows out. It's going to be water that flows out of this rock as a result of you striking this rock. Now, on one hand, at its surface, this is incredible grace from God. Here you have these people who are complaining and crying out. They're actually saying things like, Have you brought us out here in order to kill us, our children and our livestock, with thirst? They're actually doubting the goodness of God after everything that they've experienced up to this point. His extreme faithfulness and devotion to them is in doubt. They are ready at a moment of thirst to throw it all out the window and to say God must hate us, God must want to kill us. And in response to that audacious claim, God brings water from the rock. There is no rebuke. There is no corrective word. He brings water out of the rock and blesses his people. This is the grace of God in being patient with his disobedient and grumbling people. But there's something deeper going on here, a beautiful picture that is being created by the Lord. Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4, that we can understand this passage in this way. He said in that verse, And all of them drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. He's referring to the people of Israel wandering in the wilderness. And he said that the spiritual rock that followed them, he said, and the rock was Christ. So in other words, what Paul is saying is that there is this picture of Jesus in this passage. And Jesus himself is the rock struck with the rod and out comes from the rock water to nourish the people. And that explains to us why the Lord said to Moses, take the rod by which you struck the Nile and instead strike the rock. This rod, this wooden instrument, more than likely a picture of the cross itself, when it struck the Nile, what the Egyptians needed was the blood. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. But for the people of Israel who were under the blood, who had put the blood of the firstborn pure and spotless lamb on the doorpost of their home, these people whom the angel of death had passed over on that ominous night, those people were covered by the blood. They were his covenant people. They were in, 
so to speak, the blood upon them. What they needed now was for the water of Christ to wash them, to nourish them. Listen, you and I, we go back to the cross of Jesus Christ. We receive his life-giving flow of living water, the cleansing ministry of his cross, and the Holy Spirit bubbling out of our lives and upon us. We can receive a beautiful blessing from the Lord and receiving from his Holy Spirit, drinking of his wonderful living water. Now, unfortunately, later on in Numbers chapter 20, Moses would actually damage this picture that was being created here by God. We'll see that when we get to Numbers chapter 20, but suffice it to say, later on the Lord would tell him to speak to the rock. It had already been struck, but Moses in his anger struck the rock again in order to bring water out. And it was this event that actually precipitated Moses being kept from the promised land. Now Moses here, in response to all of this, he names this particular place. They were in the habit now of naming these specific locations during their wilderness wanderings. He names it Massa and Meribah, which means testing and quarreling. So you could tell that Moses didn't like this whole scene, didn't like what he was experiencing, didn't like this testing of God, didn't like this quarreling and this argument. And it says that he named it that because of the quarreling of the people of Israel, because they tested the Lord. And he records there that this is how they tested the Lord. They said, is the Lord among us or not? And what a fascinating question. I mean, we are less than six months removed from the ten plagues, the pillar of the cloud and fire, the opening and shutting of the Red Sea, the miraculous sweetening of the water, the sending of food and meat from heaven. And after all of that, their question is, is the Lord among us or not? It's wild to even dream that they would ask such a question. Of course the Lord is among you. Of course the Lord is with you. But their hearts were stiff before the Lord. And like us so often, they wavered in their faith. Now, after this wonderful provision from the Lord, it says in verse 8, Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So, same location. Now this enemy comes and attacks them in that location. And it's the people of Amalek, the Amalekites. Now, these Amalekites, they were nomads who lived in the desert there in that region south of Canaan. And they were actually distant relatives of the people of Israel. Esau, who we studied in the book of Genesis, the brother of Jacob, who became known as Israel, Esau had a son named Eliphaz, and Eliphaz had a child with a concubine named Timnah. And their child was named Amalek. So Amalek is merely the grandson of Esau. So 
I guess that makes Jacob his grand uncle or something like that. And Amalek went on and became a nomadic people, a large nation of people. And this will be the beginning here of a long struggle with the Amalekites. And so the Amalekites come and fight with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses, verse 9, said to Joshua, choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek. Well, Moses, Aaron and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary, so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. Well, Aaron and Hur held up his hands on one side and the other on the other side, so his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. So, a couple of interesting things to point out here. First of all, we have this war between the Amalekites and the Israelites. And the way Moses handles it is interesting. He goes to Joshua. And this is our first encounter with this young man. His name means Yahweh is help, Yahweh the Savior. And Joshua is going to occupy some wonderful roles in Scripture. He's a man who's a servant in many ways. He was filled with devotion. He would go part of the way with Moses to receive the tablets in Exodus 32. He was one of the original spies who we'll discover in Numbers chapter 14. Moses would send 12 spies into the promised land to observe it for 40 days. Joshua was one of those 12 and one of the two, along with Caleb, who believed that the Lord would give them the victory. So he was filled with devotion, serving Moses, but he was also filled with faith, believing that God could and would give them the victory. But he would also become the man who would actually lead the people of Israel into the promised land. He doesn't know it yet. Moses doesn't know it yet. But God knows it. After they would wander in the wilderness for 40 years due to their unbelief, Moses would die, Joshua would become their leader, and at 80 or so years of age, he would lead them into the promised land. And God would encourage him to be strong, to be courageous, and that he would be with him wherever he went into that promised land. So Moses tells Joshua, he says, hey, you go out, you lead these guys into battle. I'm going to go up to the top of this hill with Aaron and with Hur. Now, we're not sure who Hur is. Jewish tradition associates him with Miriam, Moses's older sister, either Miriam's husband or Miriam's son. We can't be sure. But he goes there with Aaron and with her. And Moses, as long as his hands were held in the air with the rod of God in his hand, Israel prevailed in their war against the Amalekites. But when his hands grew tired and his hands went down, the Amalekites would rise up and would begin to win the fight. So just a very interesting thing here. And this would, in one sense, teach a valuable lesson 
to the people of Israel. I mean, what you have to remember here is that this is really their first battle that they are engaging in directly. God gave them incredible victory over the Egyptians, but they really didn't have to do a whole lot of fighting there. Here, they're actually fighting, and as long as their leader's hands are in the air, they are winning the victory. And I think that a couple of the lessons that they would learn is, first of all, that they needed to know that victory was a miraculous thing that would be given to them by God. Had they just gone out and won the victory, it may have been supernatural, but they may not have attributed to the living God. But by seeing this supernatural thing of the hands up and the hands down and the victory being won when the hands were up and, and victory slipping from their grasp when the hands were down, they would have come away with the unmistakable lesson that victory comes from the hand of God. What a great lesson for God's people of all time in every generation to understand. They weren't to leave this situation here in Exodus 17 and write a book about how victory comes. They weren't to take the credit. They weren't to say, well, we followed these simple steps, nine steps to victory over our enemies. No, they were to realize that it comes from God comes from God in various shapes and sizes, as he would teach them for generations. But it comes from God. I think also the hands probably have some kind of indication concerning prayer. The New Testament tells us to lift up holy hands, men of God, without wrath and doubting, in prayer to the Lord. We're to lift up our hands to the Lord. It's a symbol, it's an outward expression of dependence upon the living God. And here when Moses had his hands raised, shouting and proclaiming dependence upon God, they were victorious. When we are praying, we are at our best. When we are dependent upon the Lord, there is great victory that comes. Independence is often a great killer of God's work in our lives. And isn't it beautiful here that Aaron and her come alongside of Moses, they set him down, on this stone stool that they give to him, and they hold up his hands for him. Everyone needs people in their lives to help them when their hands grow tired. It's important for us to support one another, to support one another in prayer, but to support one another in life, to be an encouragement, to help, to bless. Now in verse 14, it says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book, and recite it in the ears of Joshua. This is something now that after the victory, God tells Moses what to do. He says, you need to write this down. And not only write it down, but recite it in the ears of Joshua. This is more than likely a prophetic thing. Joshua would need to know this as the future leader of Israel. And this is what it was. That I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is my banner, saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. So God tells Moses, he says, listen, you need to know that I am going to blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And obviously Joshua needed to know this because he would be used to fight against the Amalekites in 
the generation to come. And so Moses here, in response to all of this, he builds an altar and he calls the name of it, the Lord is my banner. And this has beautiful military connotations because banner, the root means to be high, to be raised up, to be obvious, to be conspicuous. In other words, what he's saying is he's saying, you know, as I lifted up this staff, as I raised it high, the victory belonged to the Lord. The Lord raised us up. And so there was just this lesson that they learned here that God would provide for them food, but would also protect them and defend them and give them victory militarily. And the Lord obviously isn't now for the church designing to give us military victory, so to speak. There is an invisible spiritual war that we are in, that in that realm, the Lord desires to give us wonderful victory over the enemy, an enemy worse than Amalek, the devil himself, the world, the flesh, and the devil coming against us. The Lord will give us great victory. But what about this thing? of the Lord having war with Amalek from generation to generation. These Amalekites would remain a persistent and harassing enemy of Israel in the generations to come. They would, when the Israelites tried to attempt entrance into Canaan, they would hinder them in Numbers 14. Saul would, as the first king in Israel, have to fight against the Amalekites. David would eventually, finally destroy them. But here, why such struggle and why would God come against them to utterly blot them out? It seems rather harsh in one sense. Women and children and men. I think in one sense, you could say that God was angry that they had not submitted to the obvious plan of God in Israel's life. I mean, everybody knew of what God had done in Egypt. Everybody knew, it was very public, the record, that God was for the Israelites and, and that God was bringing them to the promised land. But Amalek chose to resist the obvious, revealed will of God. In Psalm 83, we discover the intention of Amalek in attacking the Israelites. They are listed among others, and they say in verse 4 of Psalm 83, Come, let us wipe Israel out as a nation. Let the name of Israel be remembered no more. But beyond all of that, it appears also that God would grow angry with Amalek because they exhibited a dirty tactic in attacking the weak and the weary in Israel at the rear of Israel's march. I mean, this is a low and dirty blow. Deuteronomy 25, verse 17 through 19 details how they attacked the faint and the weary and cut off the tail and those who were lagging behind, the stragglers. So unlike the Midianites of Jethro who believed, these Amalekites grew hard-hearted and resisted the clear will and plan of God and the sovereign Lord of the universe who obviously from his throne in heaven and perspective in eternity and knows everything, 
knew exactly what the Amalekites would do were they allowed to persist to live, the God of heaven made a judgment to remove them from the scene in order to protect Israel, who would, of course, give birth to the Messiah. And it is his divine prerogative to do so. So God's provision for the people of Israel. God bless you. And amen. Thank you for listening. For additional resources and teachings, or to contact us, please visit us at nateholdridge.com.